0: Well, Genesis chapter 1 is where we find ourselves again. <clears throat> we make a great strides in our study this morning. <laughs> We're going to get through two days of creation if all things go well. So far it's been a, a bit of a slow go, and that, at least from my perspective, is to be understanding um, simply because of the complexity that is in the book of Genesis. There's so much information that can be drawn into this. There's so much... Determination on what to leave out. There's rabbit holes that you can run through that really don't help do anything but debate with people who don't need to be debated with. And so um, we continue in our study of Genesis 1. So as we explore the miraculous and the supernatural work of creation, we're reminded of the immense power and majesty in God's creation. With infinite wisdom and power, God simply speaks the universe into existence. <clears throat> he didn't have to think about it for long periods of time. He didn't have trial and error. He simply knew what needed to be done. He knew how it needed to be done. And he speaks it into existence through the power of that resides in him. So, in verse one, Moses summarizes the act of creation, and through the end of the chapter, he provides the detail of this creation. He's not attempting to provide a, an explanation suitable for modern-day scientific inquiry. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gives the account of one whose feet are firmly planted on the ground as he gazes up into the skies of the ancient world. Many believe that Moses penned these words words during the wilderness wanderings. He did so as a record for the Israelites and also as a response to the worship of of a pantheon of mythological gods that surrounded the nation of Israel. These mythologies celebrated and worshipped creation... Instead of the Creator. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was a massive pool of water without shape and without habitation. It was enveloped in darkness. The Spirit of God was hovering or moving over the earth, highlighting the special work of creation. It was going to be brought about on this planet that we currently live on. And so the remainder of day 1 through day 3 would provide form to this unshaped planet, and days 4 through 6 would provide the filling of the uninhabited earth. So in verse 3, God declared, Let there be light, and there was light. The light was the light of His glory, since the moon and the sun and the stars were not yet created until day 4. So the earth hangs in space, illuminated by God's glory. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And this is the birth of the light and darkness motif, and we're going to see another motif introduced to us today. So light always reminding us of the presence of God, the glory of God, and the spiritual purity of God in this motif, and darkness symbolizing sin, evil, and separation from God. Light, And life are found in God lifelessness and darkness are always experienced apart from God and a part of what I believe is pulled into the earth being in darkness and God illuminating earth with the light of his glory is carried throughout the scriptures in this motif. So the first day of creation ended. My treatment of the days of creation will be a literal 24 hour solar day as opposed to days of an indeterminate amount of time. This is what the text clearly supports with the usage of the word day. Also, the repetition of evening and morning as a timestamp at the conclusion of each of these six days of creation. So now we turn our attention to day two. We're going to read, first of all, verses six through eight and look at the expanse that God is going to create. So in verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and, so, and, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So the work of the second day of creation is centered on the dividing of the water from from the water verse 6 God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters so God simply speaks and his creative genius and power is unleashed and again God can create as much in a nanosecond as he can create in a hundred billion years it's not a difficult thing for him and so here God creates the expanse, the expanse is the atmosphere or the skies and later in verse 8 it is called the heavens. So this takes quite a bit of explanation. It's not as complicated as it might seem at first. So in earth's original form, there was only water. This is very difficult to grasp because all we know now is the land that we walk on and the bodies of water that we might go visit for a swim or a trip to go fish or to do something else. But in earth's original created state, there was nothing but water, 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 was from the very bottom of the earth all the way into the skies. There was no differentiation, there was no distinction. Only a massive ball of water that expanded out into space as far as you could see. Here on day two, God divides the water into two distinct layers. This space separating these two layers comprises our atmosphere... Or the skies that we see each day. Now verse 7 is a repetition of verse 6. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And so it was. Now as we look at this, the creation of the expanse, it's helpful to remember that Moses isn't speaking into a modern scientific community but to an ancient culture with no ability to make the same scientific distinctions about the atmosphere that we make today. Moses is simply looking into the sky. He sees the sky, the blue sky, the clouds that are in the sky. He sees the dark expanse of space, as we would call it today. And so there is no distinction about the atmospheres that we have come to know through scientific study today. So, for example... NASA says the Earth's atmosphere has five major and several secondary layers. From lowest to highest, the layers are the troposphere, which extends to approximately 7.5 miles into the skies, the stratosphere, which extends from 7.5 miles to approximately 31 miles out into the skies, The Mesosphere, mesosphere, which extends from approximately 31 miles to 50 miles. The Thermosphere, which extends from 50 miles to 440 miles. And the Exosphere, which extends from 440 miles to 6200 miles above the earth. Moses has nothing to say about that reality. That is not his point. That is not his intention. He's simply describing the work of God in separating a layer of... Of water into two, the waters of the earth, the waters that are in the heavens, and in the middle is this expanse or this atmosphere that God has now created. So there's a bit of a mystery here as to what separating the waters from the waters actually means. There's two primary ways that this is understood or explained. So the Hebrew word for expanse Means to beat out or to spread out like a covering. It was often used in the beating out of gold and in beating out that gold it was made into a thin layer that could then be used as an overlay of a piece of wood or something else. Something else. This is likely what it, how it was used in the creation of the pieces that were within the tabernacle. For example, the Ark of the Covenant. Likely layers of gold that had been beaten out that cover over something else. So some believe that when God created the expanse or the firmament, in some translations, He also created a protective water canopy or dome, that was high above the skies. God laid out a covering over the expanse, separating the waters from the waters, and this protective water canopy, or dome, is high above the skies. It is theory theorized that this protective canopy provided for perfect temperature, It protected for a time from the harmful rays of the sun. It elongated life. And this is why so many people in the book of Genesis lived for 900 years or so. It is also believed that the flood of Noah's day was the result of God unleashing this upper layer of water upon the earth and flooding it in a very short period of time. Now this is just a theory. It is... Speculated based upon the meaning of the word expanse, that it was a covering that was beaten out, for example. But there's nothing in the text that makes this assessment verifiable. It's simply an extrapolation of the word expanse. Most believe the separation of the waters simply speaks of the water vapor that is in the skies, found in the clouds, And is the cause of rain upon the earth. Throughout this chapter, Moses uses the term heavens and expanse synonymously and interchangeably as we would see, as we will see in verse 8. So God names the expanse heaven. And that's what it says here in the beginning part of verse A. God called the expanse heaven. Now, throughout this chapter, as I just mentioned, we see the interchangeable terminology of heaven and skies and expanse used throughout this. We see this in Genesis 1, 15, 17, and 20. And let them be for, this is the, God created the, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then in verse 17, God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Then in verse 20, God said, let the waters team with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. So based upon how Moses chooses to use the word expanse synonymously and interchangeably with skies and or heavens, it seems most likely that he's not talking about a protective dome that has water above it and then our atmosphere between it and the waters of the earth. It's simply the vapor of water that exists in the skies, in the clouds, clouds, and then becomes the source of rain upon the earth. God calling the expanse heaven should not be understood by what we hear or think of when we hear the word heaven today. When we think of heaven, we refer to the eternal place of God's presence where the departed believers and the angels exist in God's presence. But here in Genesis, heaven simply means the skies. Now, adding to this mystery about the heavens and The beliefs that there are degrees of heaven, or there are layers of heaven, this is introduced for us in the book of 2 Corinthians, and in one of Paul's visions, he gives an account of being ushered into the third heaven. And that would to us indicate that there was a first heaven and a second heaven. So what did Paul mean by that? Here's what it says in Second 2 Corinthians 2.12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up So Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about this experience that he had in the presence of God, whether in the body or out of the body. He did not know, but he believed that he was in the third heaven, the place where God dwells. So the first heaven is the skies of our atmosphere. The second heaven would be space that we would see from the earth beyond the skies of the clouds and the birds that soar. And then there is the third heaven where God dwells, which we cannot see, and we will only get to by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So that is kind of the explanation, as best as I can put it together, about separating the waters from the waters and the synonymous usage of the word heavens meaning skies and the upper atmosphere. And then what we find here is God naming this expanse as the heavens, and believe it or not, this has a theological significance to it. And it clarifies that God created the skies, and it affirms that He and He alone rules over... The heavens that he created, the skies and the atmosphere that we see. Divine rule of the skies was particularly important in ancient religions. The pagan mythologies that that Moses is dealing with in the wilderness wanderings that the nation of Israel is going to have to contend with once they enter into the promised land. Again, Moses makes clear that God created the skies and is the one true God over it, again replacing mythology with truth. God created the expanse of the skies. He named it the heavens. He not only created it, but He rules over it. And this brings the conclusion of day two, the latter part of verse 8. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Again, The second or the number two with the little uh, suffix of nd behind it indicates a literal day, a 24-hour solar day. And you will notice here in the only day in creation, there's no pronouncement on the quality of God's work. He does not declare that it was good. It does not imply that it was not good. But the third day of creation completes what was begun on, on day two. And in this third day, there is a double declaration of the goodness of God's creation, and this is what we'll see here now as we turn our attention to day three. Now, if we were in a small group, I would say any questions and we would certainly run off into rabbit trails, but we're not going to do that here. So we're going to read uh, verses 9 through 13 as we look at day 3. Then God said, let there be waters below the heavens, excuse me, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, and the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with them in fruit, excuse me, bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. So day three begins, just as the others have, God says, let it be, and it was so. So God creates dry land. Verse 9, God said, let waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So this is the third foundational division. In creation, on the first day, God divided light from darkness. On the second day, he divided water from water. And now on the third day, he divides land from the seas. At this point in creation, there is an atmosphere between the waters... But the earth is still covered in water and without any signs of life. You can imagine being in a boat in the middle of an ocean and all you see forever and forever on the horizon is water. And this was the condition of the earth in its original created state. Water as far as the eye could see. Dry land nowhere. And God simply says, let there be, and in an instant, there is dry land. The waters on the earth have been gathered into one place. Dry land appears from beneath the water at the verbal command of God. And I don't know that we can visually imagine such a sight. What an incredible sight it must have been, and I don't believe that modern-day computer-generated graphics could do it justice, as dry land rises out of the depth of the seas and appears out of nowhere. Most geologists today believe that at one point, the continents may have actually been one giant mass which is what our text here supports today. There's not really any explanation for the seven continents in Scripture as we experience them today. But geologists believe that there was a single mass at some point, and through continental drift and a myriad of explanations, the continents as we experience them today have come to be But I want you to imagine the enormity of all seven continents emerging out of the water in a single act and in an instant. Have you ever seen a picture or a video of a huge piece of glacier ice fall into the sea and the amount of water that is displaced and the amount of splash that... That emanates from that large glacial piece of ice falling into water. Imagine what it would have been like for the singular seven continents in a single bass rise up out of the sea, out of nowhere, in an instant. It's unimaginable. I, I, I don't know how you can wrap your brain about that, and I believe that much of science today says, I just don't see how that can be, therefore it cannot be. Again, Moses isn't attempting to describe our modern scientific understanding, but it is very plausible that there was a single landmass, and it is theorized that the great flood of Noah's day potentially caused the continental drift as we see it today in the distinction of the seven continents. It can't be proven. It's plausible. Our scripture... Seems to indicate a single mass. Something had to have happened to cause a separation of that singular mass into the seven continents that we see today. But these are modern speculations that go beyond the text, and we could chase this speculative theory out for hours and hours and end up right where we right where we started. God said there was a singular dry land. The the waters were gathered together. We don't see that today. We don't know how that happened. We can only guess as to how that actually came about. God's creative power displays in the mass of earth, of dry land coming up out of the water. He displays his power over the earth. He displays that he is Lord over the earth, and the worship of the earth today, as it has been for centuries, is misplaced. The notion of there being a mother earth or a mother nature is completely contrary to the truth of God's word. Many, many ancient religions, all of the mythologies, worship something about the dry land. They worship something about the seas. And as we would go and look at in the creation of the animals and the creatures that inhabit the land and the seas, there's myriads of mythologies that worship those things, all of them worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Now, verse 10, beginning part of that, God called the dry land earth. Just as the dry land miraculously appears from beneath the water, the water is also gathered into one place. And gathering the gathering of the waters He called the seas, and God saw that it was good. The dry land is called earth, and the waters is called the seas. I'm sorry, I didn't click as quickly as I should have. Forgive me. And the water is now called the sea. So one massive land mass and one massive body of water, which is now what comprises the creative work of God on the earth. Today, much of the earth is still covered by water. And although we make the distinction of oceans and seas, Moses' point that in the beginning there was a singular body of water and a singular mass of land. It cannot be known what role the subsequent flood had on both the land and the seas of Moses' day. Moses isn't attempting to describe the waters as we would see them today or even in his own day, simply describing God's creative work and allowing or causing the landmass to come up out of the earth. Now what is amazing to me about this aspect of creation is that from beneath the water, the landmass appears and how does scripture Scripture describe this massive land. It is dry land. It's not mud. It's not slime. It's not a, a primordial goo. God has caused dry land to arise out from beneath the waters that have enveloped the earth. The covering of the earth is mysteriously and miraculously nutrient rich, and it is ready to sustain life for the final work of day three. Think about that. How does modern science try to explain? the existence of vegetation and all plant life. Well, for hundreds of millions of years there was this natural process or this chemical reaction that created all of this stuff and the problem always comes back to this. How does animate life come out of inanimate objects? There just isn't any real explanation for that apart from a divine being creating life as we experience it today. So the soil that is now covering the earth, that is described as dry land, is nutrient rich and it's ready for the vegetation that's about to come. God observes the dry land and the seas and he declares that they were good. What was missing in the second day of creation is now added twice here in day three. It was good, and then here again, it was good. Now that the water has been separated from the, from the waters, and the dry land has emerged from beneath the waters, God declares that it was good. Now the second thing that God creates here, in addition to the dry land, is the vegetation. Verses 11 and 12. That God said, Let the seed sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit, after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Again, by the spoken word, God creates vegetation and plant life. Now there's two basic categories of vegetation that are indicated here. Plants yielding seed, and trees also yielding seed. And you will notice that all vegetation, all plants, and all trees were created and the phrase here is after their own kind. Now that's an important distinction. The fact that creatures reproduce according to their own kind is a fundamental rule of genetics. So think about this. God created the plant life, all the vegetation, all the trees to produce seed of their own kind, meaning that they would continue to reproduce themselves out of their own kind. Now, let me repeat what I just said. The fact that creatures reproduce according to their own kind is a fundamental rule of genetics. This is cut and paste. Listen to this. Each organism has a unique DNA structure with genes and chromosomes that determine all of its characteristics. Careful breeding can emphasize or minimize certain characteristics within the genotype, but no amount of cross-pollination can cause a whole new life form to arise from the species that exist. In layman's terms, what that means is you can't take the seed of an apple and the seed of an orange and blend them together and get a totally new species. You can't do that. You can take apple seeds, you can extract the genes of the chromosomes within those seeds, the DNA if you will, and you can emphasize certain characteristics or to diminish certain characteristics and you can then create a certain kind of apple, but you can't take the two together an orange and an apple and breed them into a totally new species. Now we're going to talk a lot more about this as we get into animal kingdom and to the creation of humanity as we know it. But this is an important distinction and it is essential that we understand this as we begin to flesh out the theory of evolution and the pitfall that exists within it. We'll talk more about that as we get to it. We could sidetrack and not finish day three and I don't want to do that. Just as the waters were given their boundaries, God separated the waters, right? The water separated from the water, they're given their boundaries. Just as the waters are given their boundaries, so is all plant life, they're given seeds to reproduce after their own kind. The point here is this, what God speaks into creation is already mature and ready to sustain life. There isn't the need for months, or years, or hundreds of millions of years, it is instantly ready, it is mature, to accomplish God's purposes instantly. God said, and it was. God's creative power is able to do the impossible, which modern science cannot explain and cannot accept. Therefore, modern science dismisses much of the biblical record. Animal life has been created from nothing. It did not evolve from chemical reaction or over a long natural occurring process. God simply spoke and it was created. So God created our world in days fully ready and fully mature, suitable for his purposes. And the age old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the seed or the fruit? The Bible tells us the fruit came first. The chicken came first with the ability to reproduce after its own kind. Now the creation of plants, this vegetation, the plants and the trees that have seed that will produce of their own kind introduces us to a second very important motif. This is the seed motif or the motif of the seed this begins with God's covenant to Abraham. It is identified here. It, is a, it, is, it begins with God's covenant to Abraham. It says in Genesis 9, nine. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. But it was first applied, the seed motif, at the fall after the fall of man when god is handing out his curse upon the serpent and upon mankind and it says in genesis 3:15 and i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise him on the head so in this seed motif seed refers to a uh, i missed it seed is a metaphor, meaning offspring, or descendants, as referenced in Genesis 9 with the descendants of Abraham. In Genesis 3, seed is referring to a spiritual offspring. I will put enmity between your seed and between her seed, speaking to the serpent, and then speaking about the woman Eve. And so the seed of Adam, you've heard that reference before, the seed of Cain, the seed of Abel, indicate a spiritual ancestry that is included in this seed motif. Now here's what's interesting about this. The The word seed used here to describe the seeds that come from the plants and the trees... The descendants of Abraham and the seed used in Genesis 3 are all the exact same word in the Hebrew. They all mean offspring. And so this seed motif is incredibly important throughout Genesis. And as you read through Genesis and you see the identification of a spiritual seed being passed on, and then as you begin to read through the history of Israel, you will find this spiritual seed traced through Israel's history where there is the seed of, Ab- of Adam, the seed of Abel, which is a good spiritual offspring, you'll see the seed of the serpent or the seed of Cain, which then become the enemies of Israel, and you'll see those seeds traced throughout Israel's history. So it's very, very important. It's introduced here, and we could actually trace this out with a lot of example over a long period of time. But we'll look at the seed motif a little bit more when we get into Genesis a little bit deeper. So God has created all vegetation with seeds for continued development, and he declares that it was good. So according to God's plans and purposes, displaying His power in creation, His rule over creation, He's created vegetation of trees and plants, both with seeds, and it's been created for the, for the continuation of the species. and God looks on it and declares that it was good, and then verse 13 declares it was evening, and there was morning, and there was a third day. So these are probably, uh, day two is a simpler day to deal with. Day three introduces us to some of the complexity that will flesh out a little bit further as we go through the days of creation. But I find so much to be interesting about the power of God's creative work that mystifies modern science, that can look into space further than our human eye could ever think to see, And it simply declares His creative power, His rule over everything that He's created. It sets aside the false mythologies that the nation of Israel is going to have to contend with. And it screams to man today, how did all this come about? How can this be reasonably explained apart from what is read in these descriptions of the days of creation? I mentioned this in the hallway as I was speaking with Ken. I believe that it takes greater faith to believe that the complexity of the created world exists apart from God than it does to believe in a creative being speaking this into into existence without our ability to completely understand it nor explain it. I think it takes more faith to deny God's creative work than it does to read the Scripture and just say, wow, what an amazing God we serve. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?